All right, many of you may recognize this poster. I want you, all right, for the U.S. Army. It was originally uh, used during, does anyone know? World War I, right. Good teacher, just patching the back, good answer, everybody, okay? But this was actually a knockoff from another poster that came uh, from England three years earlier. In 1914, this was the poster that kind of made this idea famous. And this guy in the picture was actually a real person. You recognized Uncle Sam there, of course, before. This is a guy named Lord Kitchener. He was the British Secretary of State for War in 1914 when this poster was, was first used. And um, again, the message is clear, the finger's pointing, right? Lord Kitchener wants you to serve to fight this war against, you know, the German expanding empire in World War I. Uh, famous, famous pictures, they clearly communicate a message about what the government wants from at least its male citizens, right? Military service to engage in this battle, right, to fight for their country against a common, you know, enemy. And this, these actually, uh, these posters inspired many other uh, posters, most of them for war. Amongst the list that I looked at, there was probably 10 or 12 of them that are used by the, the Soviets, used a similar kind of propaganda message with a famous person or image of a person pointing the finger and say, we want you. Um, but here's another one you may recognize. And it was also inspired as, you know, only you can. Wow, isn't that what a great big idea it sticked, didn't it, from whenever you saw that in elementary school. Now, what does Smokey want from you? He wants you to be proactive about managing your own cigarette butts when you're walking through the woods, okay? You're the one that can prevent forest fires. It's clear what Smokey the Bear wants you to do is not start a fire in the woods, okay? All right, all this silliness aside, we're, we, are, we are in this series called There's Good News, and we've introduced it with this question of what does God want? Last week we talked about a couple different religions, semi-popular ones called Islam and Hinduism. Only, you know, billions of people in each of those. And then different answers to that question. God wants submission or the gods want sacrifices. This week, we're coming back to this question. We're going to personalize a little bit and say, what does God want from me? What does God want from me? Our government wants you to serve in the military. Smokey the Bear wants you not to start a forest fire. Right? Different religions of the world want submission or sacrifice, obedience. What does the Bible say that God wants from you? So, to answer this question, we're walking through this book of the Bible called Galatians. And that's just uh, an ancient geographic location that is in modern Turkey, this region of Galatia. This guy, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to this group of churches in that area. The problem that he's addressing is that there's been some people that kind of came from out of town and started talking about how these early followers of Jesus also needed to keep the old laws that the Israelites followed that came to Moses. And Paul's saying, that's not the deal. And that's why he's writing this letter to these churches in Galatia and uh, trying to address this situation. So here's what we're going to do today. Okay, we're going to walk through about a chapter and a paragraph. So it's a little bit of a lengthy section. 
We're trying to cover a lot of ground in four weeks, and we're going to be walking through. It's kind of a dense section. I'm just preparing you for this, all right? There's a little bit of density here. So we're going to take it kind of a chunk at a time, and I'm going to try to just explain and apply it, and then just give you a quick illustration of each of these things. But it's a little bit of a, Paul has a logical flow as we're reading through this, and I'm going to try to walk you through this and explain what this means to us. You ready? Let's do it. So we're in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading. You can read up on the screen or follow along in your Bible. And we're going to read through this chapter and then one more paragraph after that. It's a little bit of a section here. Okay, chapter 3. Paul says, very stern rebuke. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Ouch, Paul. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What Paul's saying here is that you finish the way that you start. The way that you start this whole deal with God is also the way that you continue and you finish. Right? He's Paul saying, hey, you've been fooled. You've been bewitched. Someone's put a spell on you. Right? You've heard the greatest message that's ever been preached in the whole world or shared. That of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So don't add anything to it, he's saying. And this point is, is that they've they, they should know this because they received the Holy Spirit. In other words, when someone, the Bible teaches that when someone puts their trust in God and begins a relationship with Him, God actually resides in that person through the Spirit that is everywhere. Incredible mystery. And that happened, Paul is saying, because they believed. Not because they went back and started doing all these works of the law, like being circumcised, eating not shellfish, right? Celebrating different holidays that the Jewish people had. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit because they did those things. They received it as a gift by believing and putting their trust in God. And then he just points back to Abraham and says, it didn't just start with you. God's been doing it like this for a while. It went all the way back to Abraham. It was the same thing then. The best book on teaching that I've ever read you don't know me, I was a teacher for 10 years. The best book that I ever read as a teacher was called The First Days of School. And this book is written by a, a, a teacher, this guy named Harry Wong and his wife. They, they wrote this book together, and it talks about how to start the school year well. And just how the first second, the first minute, the first hour of that class is the most important hour of the entire year, where you set the tone, right, for the year with those kids. Well, one of the things that I really appreciated about this book was that it got into kind of also kind of through the year some of the deeper things of teaching. And one of the things I always remember is that he said, when you do, you learn. The, the most effective way to learn is by you doing it. Now, the easiest way that I ever found as a math teacher was, I mean, it's easy in math, you learn when you do the problems, right? That's when you struggle you try to figure it out, and the teacher's job is to come alongside for assistance. Assistance. I've always taken that away. Now, if you've ever worked in the world of education, there's always a new thing, 
isn't there? Oh, this is the next new initiative. This is, this is the next new thing. And I'm not, I'm not bashing innovation. Innovation is a good thing, and we're always looking to improve. But there's something pretty significant about you just learn when you do stuff, right? That's just natural to how human beings. So whatever new innovation there is or new research, it's, I'm just saying it's always going to come back to we learn when we do. And Paul's saying a similar thing here in that whatever new teaching you're hearing, it's never going to replace the idea that it's all a gift from God through faith in Jesus. This message of the Bible is one of grace, meaning that we don't earn it. You can innovate all you want, but if you change that fundamental message, you've, you've lost the whole thing. If you experiment too much as a teacher and try these new things and you lose, the kids learn when they're doing the stuff, you're losing something really significant. Here's what it means for us. We enter into a relationship, according to this book of the Bible, a relationship with God through faith that's not by what we do. We never earn our way there. And we finish the journey, we stay on the journey in the same way. And that's where most of us miss it. Hey, we enter a relationship with God. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, we get on the track of, okay, now what do I need to do? But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, you're not going to finish a different way than you started. You received the Spirit of God by faith. The Bible says, as we're we're thinking about our own lives and even the stuff of our own lives, as Travis was talking about, our, our personal struggles, the Bible says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, you will believe the truth. You will believe it to the extent that you know it's truth, and that is when you are set free. Right? We live, the Bible says, by faith. That is what this walk is all about. It's a walk of increasing belief that God's real and that he loves you and that he's forgiven you for everything you've ever done and always accepts you. And another interesting thing here is Jesus uh, sorry, Paul in this passage is, is even tying miracles to faith. He's not saying, okay, if this group gets holy enough, then you'll see some miracles in here. He says, no, you saw miracles by what? By faith through the Spirit. These are, these are new Christians, right? And they're seeing miracles. Why? Because of faith. It all goes back to faith in a loving God who's forgiven us and accepts us regardless of our past, present, or the future. Verse 7, Paul goes on in his argument. Okay, you finish the way you start. Now he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, what Paul's saying here is just, hey, the true children of Abraham, that was a big identity piece for Jews back in the day. He's just saying the true children of Abraham are people of faith. The true children are not people that are circumcised or follow all these dietary restrictions or celebrate the holidays. They're people that trust and walk with God in faith. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is how it worked for Abraham, and God preached the gospel for him, saying it's going to be the same way for the Gentiles. God's going to bless all the nations through him. He's saying it ahead of time. It's those that believe are the real children of Abraham. 
In relationships, trust rules. Trust is key to any relationship of any level of intimacy. Without it, there can be no intimacy. Uh, earlier this week or a week ago, uh, someone talked to me about a book I had heard before but reminded me of something in it. And the book is called I Once Was Lost by Don Everts. He's an intervarsity guy, and he writes the book about how people actually in our society come to know Jesus. And he talks about how there's these different barriers. There's like five different barriers that people often have to work through to, to kind of do this crazy worldview shift and believing that there is a God that's real. I mean, you know, and that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe some kind of crazy stuff, right? And the first one that people have to cross is that they have to trust someone that's a Christian. Without that, it's extremely likely through this guy's statistical analysis that someone will ever come to know Jesus if they don't trust a person that is a Christian. We're relational beings, and trust is core to any relationship. And so this is what this means for us. God, again, I said this before, but God's been doing this for a while. And he's, and he's been forming relationships with people. What he wants from people is trust, is a relationship of trust like he had from Abraham so long ago. That is what he is looking for. He's not looking for people that can keep all the rules perfectly or do everything right. He's, he wants a relationship. That's the good news. And here's the good news. You don't have to earn it. It's just a matter of trusting God. Believing what he says. Really really putting your faith in him is what enables us to enter into that relationship. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That was an Old Testament Jewish practice, if they hung someone on a tree, they would view them as cursed by God. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, again, repeating himself here, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus takes the curse of the law away so that we can have the spirit through faith relationship with God of, of amazing mystery and oneness by him actually coming inside of us. So Paul is saying here, hey, first of all, no one can keep the law. And this means two things. Everyone who relies on observing this Old Testament Jewish law that God gave them, everyone who relies on that to be pardoned on Judgment Day, they're under a curse because they can't keep it. And because everyone can't keep it, the second thing that means is that then, therefore, no one's justified by the law. You can't be in a place of God saying, I pardon you because you've kept all the rules. Because you haven't kept all the rules. We haven't. We all know that. We all know we haven't lived a perfect life. But God never designed it to work that way. The law wasn't given to make people pardoned on judgment day. 
It says instead, how do the righteous live? From the beginning of creation, right? The righteous live by faith, it says. By trusting God to be the one that provides for us. And the provision is Jesus. The provision is Jesus receiving the curse that was due us because we didn't keep all the rules or do everything perfectly. Jesus received that on himself on the cross by being hanged on a tree. And any Jew, any good Jew back then saw someone hanging on a tree would say, that person was cursed by God. God hates that person, right? They took on the curse. And even in the Old Testament, you see examples of that where they, you know, in a, in a battle or whatever, they would hang someone on a tree to show that they were cursed by God. And then they would put out, pile lots of huge rocks on top of their bodies. They would be denied almost the resurrection. That was the belief. Another key component in relationships is that honesty rules as well. Trust and honesty work together. This is one of the reasons the Bible says, speak the truth in love. A relationship is always limited, whether it's a friendship or in a marriage, by how honest the two people are. With themselves, but also with one another. If you're not honest about your own junk or about, you know, what's going on in your own life, it limits the depth of a relationship with another person because you're not seeing yourself even for who you are. And if you're not willing to be honest with the other, it limits the intimacy as well. The point here is that the Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. In the Bible, and you see this actually all through the book of Psalms, is that it's only those that admit that they're not righteous who are righteous. The righteous are those who say, I'm not righteous, as Travis did up here today, right? Those are the people that the Bible says, those are those who are righteous because they are honest about who they are. And that is how we come to God. We don't come to God saying, look at how good I've done. We come to God saying, I need you. I'm not righteous. Please help me. It's really that simple. And the trust there that God will respond to do something about that. That's the message that Paul is saying. The righteous live by faith. An honest assessment of who we are, welling down into our own you know, self-centeredness and just putting that up to God. And having confidence that Jesus, in fact, did take your place. That God's not going to pour his wrath on people that admit their own unrighteousness before him. Amazing that that's how it works. Verse 15. Paul's using an illustration. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, let me explain. He's just saying, God made a promise to Abraham a long time, 430 years before the law came. The law doesn't get rid of the promise. And the reason is, 
you know, when you sign a contract, once you've signed it, it's done. There's no changing it and there's no annulling it. You sign the contract. You bought the house. You're stuck with it now, Keith, right? Okay. If it breaks, you got to fix it. Now it's your house, right? If something goes wrong, it's on you, right? Once you've signed the deal, you're not changing the terms, right? And you're not annulling it. You can't just get rid of it. And what this is saying is that God made a promise to Abraham with, without any conditions on it. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And then if you know this weird story in the Old Testament about how Abraham cuts up these pieces and then it says he guarded the vultures from eating them. Such a weird Bible verse, right? And then he fell asleep. And then God walked through the pieces. That's weird. But what that meant was whoever walked through these animals that they cut up was the one that would take the hit if they didn't keep the agreement. God was saying, I will take the hit if, if this doesn't work out or if someone doesn't keep this. He makes a promise that's only on him. And it's a foreshadowing of who would ultimately take the hit but God himself through Jesus Christ on the cross. God said, I'm going to walk through the pieces. I'm the one that's going to take the hit. I am promising to make this good. So whatever happens with this Mosaic law 430 years later and that the Israelites don't keep it and all this stuff, Paul's just saying it doesn't cancel that God already promised to bless all the nations. Okay? Before um, Jade and I left for Europe, this past summer, we, we signed like a basic will. And I have no idea if it was like legally binding, but at least we said if we both die, someone will see this was their intent, right? And we left, you know, we left everything, just everything to our kids. Everything goes to our kids. This is who we want to take care of our kids, our Jade's uh, sister and brother-in-law. We're leaving everything to them. Now, you can't annul that. We signed it. I mean, we could write a new one, I guess. But the point is like, this was, this was initiated. And on top of that, Sam and Wes didn't earn this. It was, it's just a promise of ours. We're not leaving everything to them because they somehow like made their way up to it and said, okay, you guys are good enough sons and you've obeyed enough and now we're going to give you this stuff. No, it's just from a promise. There's nothing conditional about them. It's all on us making a promise to them. They're just, they're just born into it. What this means for us is that we get an inheritance because God promised to do it. Because God took care of it. It's all on Him. That's the good news. God wants a relationship with us. And that's the good news. God made every provision for us to be able to enter into that relationship. We don't have to earn any part of it. And nothing can ever annul it or cancel it. And we don't have to go back to keeping any rules once we're there. Verse 19. Why then the law? Good question, Paul. I mean, what was the point of the law anyways? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, Jesus, the singular there, should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I'll try to explain that confusing statement. Paul's saying this, the law was given because there was sin there, but a promise is way better. Okay? First of all, we know the law was temporary because we're not not eating lobster right now. Right? And Paul's trying to make this clear. It was a temporary thing. It happened 430 years. Did you say praise the Lord? Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, okay. (laughs) 
430 years, right? It wasn't even there. And Abraham's following God and being reckoned righteous, right? Having a right standing relationship with God. Okay? It had a beginning and an end. And the law was put in place because of transgressions. Vague statement. There could be, the, the, the commentators have all kinds of ideas about what this could mean. I think it could mean a couple of things. Could mean God gave them the law so they wouldn't just kill each other and fight. The law was a really good law compared to all the laws in the surrounding ancient areas. It was a total upgrade from the law of Hammurabi. Or Harabi, Harabi, Hammurabi, however you want to pronounce that. It goes both ways, okay? The point is it was a good law that would protect them, that would guard them, right, as a people. And they were sinful. Another point is it would show them their own sin. It would let them see that they actually needed to enter a relationship of trust with God because that's still how people were getting to heaven, right? Back in the day, it was through faith. It wasn't through keeping the law. Otherwise, nobody would have ever gone, okay? But the third idea we talked about last week is that this actually wasn't God's first thought. His first thought was for them all to be Abraham's. He welcomed them all up the mountain in Exodus 19, and they said no. Send Moses up. Send Moses up to be what? An intermediary between us and God. They put a distance where God didn't want there to be one. And that's when the law was given, after they rejected his invitation to relationship. It says that they, he wanted a kingdom of priests. She didn't get All he got was one tribe of priests, the Levites. After all these laws, and you see the progression of sin of Israel, God gives more laws after the golden calf. And then they sin with these gold idols in Leviticus. And then it's all these other crazy laws. I don't think, this is, I'm not saying this is gospel truth, I'm just saying my thought is the law was added because they sinned. Because of transgression. Yes, to show them their sin, to guard them from sin, but also because they sinned in rejecting a relationship with God. So that's what Paul's explaining here. An intermediary, he's saying, is, is going backwards. He says, but God is one. The one that makes the promise, the one that keeps the covenant for us, that keeps the contract, that does all the work, that takes the hit upon himself when the other party doesn't do it. He's contrasting a promise where it takes only one person to give with a contract with two. Right? A contract is two people coming together to an agreement. If I just promise you something, you don't have to do anything. You can say, no way. It doesn't matter. I still promise. Right? I promise to give you my wallet. I don't know. Whatever. Right? You can say, no. I still promise. Here you go. Right? I mean, it's like it's one person acting. A promise. Rather than two coming together to kind of negotiate some deal. The promise is better is what Paul is saying. And that's what we've entered in Jesus. Before Jade and I had our first child, uh, her in-laws treated us to a, a night at the Broadmoor. Anyone know the Broadmoor Hotel and, and outside of Denver? It's this, it's, it's this uh, old hotel, kind of a historic thing in, in Colorado culture, but it's a really fancy place. And in my mind, whenever I think of a, a, a really nice hotel, we went for just a night and they paid for us to have a dinner there and I, I bought a new shirt just, you know, to look extra nice. And why are you telling them that? Okay, I don't know. I'm just reliving it in my mind. This beautiful room, you know, I mean, just, just you know, luxury. You know, I'm, I'm living in the 20s, you know, some rich person in New York, whatever. Okay. 
the phrase is always in my mind, like, we've taken care of everything, you know? We've turned down the bed for you, you know? They did that when we were gone. It's like, they turned down the sheets, like, oh, man, awesome, you know? I mean, it's just, we've taken care of everything, you know? It's like, that's the feeling you get when you walk in there. Oh, Mr. Carlson, you know, they, they know your name, and they, you know, just incredible. That is what we're talking about. God's taking care of everything. It's a promise. It's a one-way deal. Now, of course, we have to respond to that invitation. Jade and I had to say, yes, we will take you up on that. Thank you very much. This is good news, right? But the point is, is that God is doing the heavy lifting. He has done the work. He's taken care of everything by sending Jesus. He wants a relationship with us, and so he's willing to do the hardest thing that anyone could ever do, which is sacrifice their own son. Give him up for us. Amazing. Amazing the level of love. I've had this thought, and I don't know what the Bible says about this, but Jesus didn't die for the Father and the Holy Spirit. He died for us. He didn't have to die to get them back. They were one. They were enjoying each other since before creation. The, most, the, the greatest act of love in the history of the universe is Jesus dying for us is dying for enemies because he loved them and wanted to draw them near. I mean, it's just incredible to think about the greatest act of love being on our behalf, towards us. The most beautiful and wonderful thing that someone could have ever done, God did it for us, not himself. Isn't that amazing just how selfless he is to do the most wonderful thing for us, not even for himself. I mean, it was for himself because he gets us back, but he loves us. You get the idea. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And and why is Paul asking these questions? Because he's anticipating some of their objections to what he's saying. He's trying to counter them. He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The point, the law just couldn't do it all. The law cannot give life. It doesn't oppose the promise. It helped the people see their sin. It kind of corralled them in and said, this is what living together well is going to look like. You know, not killing or committing adultery or coveting your neighbors, whatever, you know. But that can't give life. It doesn't produce life giving people rules and having them follow those. And he's saying the law is not bad. He's not saying the rules are bad. The rules are good. And following the rules is good. But they don't give life. When I was a camp counselor, I, I was a camp counselor for three years, two with the kids. I would often, as a classic, just kind of type A teacher, kind of left brain, go over the rules with the kids. You know, like, okay, here's the rules, you know. Day one, I'd just be, I'd just be hammering these rules. And then we just get down to business of having fun, right? The real impact of the week was always through a relationship. Those rules that we went over in the beginning was just kind of like a cursory, like, hey, like, if you, you know, here's the boundaries, guys. But the impact on the kids' lives and the fun was always through relationship with each other. Spending time, you know, doing a canoe race, you know, hiding in the woods for some crazy scavenger hunt fun thing, and, you know, and then doing devotions at night with the kids before they go to sleep. I mean, it's all relational. That is where the impact, the life was in the camp, was relationship. God gives us life in the same way. 
The rules are not life-giving. It's relationship that gives life and actually is what gives us the power to keep the rules, so to speak. It always comes through depth of relationship with God. The rules aren't bad. The rules are good, but they don't give you the life or the power to do them. And another point here I want to make, anytime we feel condemned by the rules, as a follower of Jesus, you go back to Jesus for an exchange. Anytime you feel like, man, I blew it again. Jesus, what do you have in exchange for me? Because God's never looking at us and just looking at all the ways we've messed up. He's always seeing the righteousness of Christ and working in us to call us to a better place. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we feel condemned by the rules, we go to Jesus and ask him to trade it for something else that he wants to give us. Okay, last two sections here. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to a promise. First thing Paul's saying here is that the law was a nanny. The law, it was a nanny. When you were little, you needed someone to guard you, to keep you, keep the boundaries around, right? This guardian, this, this Greek word is like pedagogos or something like that, which is like the word for pedagogy. Okay, it's like a teacher that people would hire back in the day to like tutor their kid. There were no public schools back in Rome. You had to pay, you know, you had to pay for your kids to get educated. But Paul's saying that's what the law was like. It was put in for just a limited amount of time for this special season to show people their sin, to keep them from evil. When Jesus came, they don't need it anymore because you're brought into a relationship with God through faith. And he's saying, we are made children of God. And now we identify with Jesus even above and beyond any distinct ethnic group. And it's saying, in fact, all who believe are included no matter their ethnicity, gender, or social status. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is tomorrow, right? Maybe you have the day off. Hallelujah. Okay. What's the message there? What's the message? Right? That, that, that black Americans, that their lives in our country matter. That they're included and need to have full citizenship like anyone else. That's what they're fighting for, right? The Freedom Riders and, and, and that whole movement of Martin Luther King is similar to what Paul's angling here because there was the same thing. It was an ethnic, there's an ethnic thing going on, Jew and Gentile. The Jews are saying, no, you got to follow all these rules. You got to be like us, right? Or you're not really good Christians. We're still working through this dynamic in our country of, 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 of people seeing each other the way God sees us. And that's not to say, you know, love sees no color. No, love does see color and, and still loves and celebrates the differences, but, but still loves and, 
seeks to understand the other. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male and female. Paul's point is everyone is welcome to the same relationship with God. You don't have, because you follow these Jewish laws doesn't make you, you know, better Christians. It's actually putting you in danger of thinking you can earn your way to God. That's what Paul's saying to them. For us, right, what it means, when we believe in Jesus, we all become children of God. And God is working to unify us as a people of God across racial lines. It's the people of God that lead that charge and are called to lead that charge above everyone else. He also uses this language of putting on Christ. Right? Meaning we're, we become one with Him. We're identified with Him. We start to look like Him. Last section. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, meaning something about laws or the, the kind of the natural way that man works in the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, a daughter. And if a son, and if a daughter, then an heir through God. The point of this all is that Jesus came so that we could call God Dad. Here's the good news. God wants you to call Him Dad. He wants relationship. Here's the good news. You don't have to earn it. Jesus did that for you. Right? Again, the, the passage, the Galatians, he's saying they've grown up. They don't need the law anymore, just like a child who grows up and is now a fully an heir. Right? They, they, they have the right to vote, so to speak. Okay? Before Jesus came, they were under the law. Now they're children. They're not slaves because Jesus has redeemed them. Jesus came so that you could be adopted by God. Right? When you're a kid, for me, it always goes back to sugar cereals. Fruit Loops, you know, Honey Grams. I never did get into that cookie crisp thing. That just seemed a little too much for me. When you're a kid, you're, your parents say, no, nah, you got to eat the Cheerios, right? When you get to an adult, you can eat whatever sugar cereals you want for any meal. You're no longer under a guardian. What a beautiful thing, right? Okay. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying here. When you grow up, okay, he's not talking about cereal, but you get the point, right? When you grow up, you become right, the heir, right? You, you have fully inherit all these things. He's saying we've grown up from the law. We've outgrown that. We're not doing that anymore. Jesus has come, and it's a relationship of faith. It's a relationship of trust and love that God is welcoming you into that Jesus earned for us. Let's have the band come back up. So here's the best news of all. 
It says right here that the Spirit is put inside of us to cry out to God as Abba, Father. That is the good news. The rela- I mean, he's trying to describe this relationship that God wants and has with us in so many ways for us to get this. He puts the Spirit inside of us, and that Spirit is calling out in us to God as our dad. That is how he wants us to know him. And the challenge in our lives is to really believe that. It's to believe that. Believing that at the core of who you are makes following any kind of rules or living a good Christian life easy. Because it's the Spirit of God working inside of you to do that. He he not only dies and welcomes us into the family, but he also gives us the power to do what's right. And even when we don't, Jesus has already got it covered. That's the good news. 